Hi, I'm Dr. Popa, and I'm the author of Keep Away From Grass, and you're listening to my quest for best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Dr. Marcella Popa. Dr. Marcella Magna Popa, MD, is a board-certified internal medicine physician who graduated from Carol de Villa Medical School in Bucharest, Romania, and completed residency training in the United States. After 16 years in private practice, her autoimmune arthritis forced her into early retirement. Being a physician affected by certain medical conditions made her notice unusual facts, put questions in her mind, and compelled her to look for answers. As she stopped practicing medicine, she began to realize and research her suspicion that certain chemicals present in everyday products were worsening her arthritis symptoms. Low-dose exposure to certain other chemicals also present in commonly used products may have been the culprit in her worsening migraine headaches and even more troublesome, recurrent breast anomalies. She noticed improvements by taking a different approach and looked at these diseases from a different perspective. When she eliminated the chemicals from her body, her symptoms were alleviated. Marcel is here to talk about her book, Keep Away from Grass, that's generally recognized as the safe substances. She's based in Fort Lee, New Jersey, just outside of New York City. Welcome, Marcella. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to have you. And a question I'd like to ask each guest is when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Well, one of the uh, writers that inspired me is uh, Nicholas Steinhardt and is um, a person that had a major influence on my uh, way of uh, looking at life. How so? Yes. Oh, tell me how. He has this perspective on how to be enjoying yourself, how to treat other people kind, and how to be able to help around you, even with like nice words, not necessarily major facts if you can do them. And this is something that shaped my thinking and understanding of what I should be doing rather than what I should not do. Can you have, share an example of a time when you, after you had read his work, if you know the title of one of his books, I'd love to hear that, and how that influenced a decision you made or an interaction you had growing up? One of the decisions I had reading this book, and I read it a few times when I grew up and later on, is the fact that I wanted to be nice to people who are um, just without expecting anything back. Just be nice, be friendly, be jolly. And things are so much better. And the gratitude, if we add the gratitude element to it, being grateful for any little thing, it's something that makes you feel better, not just because you thank the other person, but because you, you just have a feeling of joy. And joy is always welcome. Do you remember a time when you, were, you had a choice as to how to respond to someone? And you were reminded internally of some of these lessons, and you decided to choose kindness, choose something to be nice about rather than other options that you had. Oh, yeah. That happened many times, and it still happens. And I 
can't say that I always have this um, kindness expressed properly. Oftentimes, I'm being honest, I oftentimes have this um, feeling that I should be saying this, which was would be correct, but maybe I shouldn't say anything at all. Marcel, tell me, how did you decide to become a physician? Medical field was something that I liked, and I always had people around reading and talking and talking about the physicians, how they're nice people and how much they know and how respected they are. And that was something that, hmm, that's nice. That's a nice thing to, to become one of those. And the other thing is, so many times I heard stories, medical stories when I was growing up, probably when I was a bit older to, to be able to remember them, about outcomes that could have been better, but something wasn't done right, or the um, certain technique was not available. And I always wondered, hmm, what if something could be done that would make somebody else improve his health and you are the one to do it? Somebody comes and tells you, oh, I have this discomfort, I have this problem, and you're able to, to solve that. And that was something that I really enjoyed thinking that I could be one of those. Marcel, did you grow up with physicians in your family? Oh, no. No, my mom is a teacher. My father was also a, um, not, I mean, was not a physician. He had a, a different kind of, um, of a job in um, manufacturing certain products. No, I was not surrounded by physicians. So you were the first in your family to become a physician and you were motivated to do this. It's not easy to become a physician. You were motivated to do this because it would be a way for you to solve people's problems and bring them relief. Yes, that was the idea. It, I had a great feeling. Um, I think I was in medical school when um, somebody called me to, um, oh, can you, come, can you come and look at my husband? I was visiting my aunt and she was, uh, oh, yeah, sure, she could come. She's, uh, she's in medical school. I was second year of medical school. I didn't really know much clinical stuff. And I was so scared to go and see the person that needed some medical advice. And I was scared that I wouldn't be able to, to help. And once I went and saw the problem, it was, wow, it's a skin infection. He will need an antibiotic. And everybody was looking at like, whoa, this is so good. You did great. And it's true. They were able to get the antibiotics. The, uh, the rash that they thought it was due to something else was actually uh, an infection that responded very well to the antibiotic. But I remember I was petrified walking there and trying to uh, create a solution, to come up with a solution that I wasn't sure I was going to have. Well, I think it's a good thing that you didn't come up with a solution before you actually saw the problem, because that's the importance of diagnosis before prognosis, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> so when you were practicing, what did a typical day look like in terms of the office you were in, the number of patients you saw, the specialty you had? What was a typical day like? It was a busy day. I worked um, in an office that was a combined medical, uh, private medical practice and a walk-in clinic. So we used to see the regular patients who had numerous problems and adjust medications and treat them. And yet we had other people who came in like an urgent care visit with a smaller problem. So I had to balance out the time I spent and the expertise I need for something like a cold or with somebody who comes with chest pain, that was a completely different ballgame. In 2012, you were forced to retire from your medical practice due to the debilitating effects of the arthritis symptoms. Many of the treatments that were prescribed 
didn't only not help you, they worsened your condition rather than improve them until you finally discovered and were set on a path to make a discovery. Take us back to that moment of insight when you made that connection that it wasn't the fact that the prescriptions you were being given weren't effective. It's just that the environment they were being put into, namely your body, was reacting to them differently. Yes. I remember I had a couple of occasions when I um, I used a, a moisturizer on my elbows. I, I normally don't do that often. I do uh, use moisturizer on my hands because I used to wash my hands a hundred times a day and the skin got dry. So, but on, on my elbows, it, it wasn't really necessary to use it that often. And like within a day or so, I noticed that my elbow got a lot more swollen. And of course, I dismissed the idea. It can't be this cream. I didn't even think about it uh, too many times. But again, after a break, maybe a couple of weeks later, the same thing happened. And then I started to pay more attention. And the third time, the same thing happened. I said to myself, it cannot be just a coincidence. And the other times I started to pay more attention to, I noticed it could happen with other creams. It could happen with prescription creams, not just moisturizer. And I realized that something in this is triggering a certain problem. And what was even more intriguing was the fact that my mom developed a, some swelling of her hand. And a couple of months later, my mother-in-law developed a swelling of her foot in using the same cream, different batches. And that's when it really hit me. I said, it has to be something in this cream that affects us. And it probably affects other people. I mean, I understand the connection with my mom, the genes, but for my mother-in-law, there was no genetic connection. And she's experienced a problem. Of course, their symptoms cleared with um, a couple of um, pills of Motrin or Celebrex. I, I forget what I gave them. But for me, it was the starting point to investigate and dig into the uh, material about the cosmetics, which is where I started first. That's fascinating because it's very clear looking back how when you saw the same symptoms occur with your mother, you thought, well, it might be some genetic connection and you easily dismissed it. But when you saw the swelling and inflammation occur due to the moisturizer cream that your mother-in-law was using, that's when it hit you. Wait, this can't be genetic. There's no relationship. That's fascinating. And then I imagine it was also a bit of a puzzle because having read the book, I know that it was the inactive ingredients the list of inactive ingredients among those were chemicals that were supposed to be inert and not cause any reaction. That were the culprits. Tell me about how you discovered that. I started to look at the um, ingredients in all kinds of creams. First, I started with the cosmetic products. Then I started to look at the um, ingredients in prescription creams. And they all had a common not denominator, which was the um, derivatives of uh, ethylene oxide, which are usually written as PEG, PEGs, or polyethylene glycols. So I said to myself, okay, so if this creams contain this, let's see what else could it be included in. And I realized it's included also in lip products, in makeup, and all kind of other um, substances, I mean, all kind of other products that we use and we don't even think that they could cause any harm. And then I looked at pills. 
I looked at medications, prescription medications, over-the-counter medications, and pills, capsules, gel tabs, intravenous medication. And I noticed that the same derivative is also used in a form or another in pretty much a lot of the tablets and pills that I took over the years. And I recall that sometimes something made a difference as far as I felt, let's say, um, improving an infection. Yet afterwards, my joints felt a lot worse. And going back and forth, thinking how it went, it was a bit difficult to establish a correlation, but I was still suffering of this autoimmune disease. I still am. I'm not where I would want to be, but um, certain things definitely had improved. But looking at my symptoms, now aware of this correlations, I realized that each time I used those products, I got a reaction. So you're using the word correlation because this was still in your stage where you're forming hypotheses about what might be causing it. You actually did experiments that helped you understand that if you removed the pegs and took something alternatively or abstained from doing that, you actually noticed an improvement not just subjectively, but measurably. And what I remember in the book is how exciting it was for you to be able to come and reduce the amount of prednisone, which is an anti-inflammatory, and have the same feeling of relief because you did it by changing your environment, by reducing, eliminating, abstaining from these products that caused the problems that contain the pegs and the polyethylene glycols. Yes, that's true. And the other thing is that because I mentioned before, this polyethylene glycols, this ethylene oxide products are um, actually not just polyethylene glycols, are a lot of other molecules which are smaller or bigger, but they come under different names. So initially I wasn't aware of all these possibilities. And I actually thought that something that I was using was fine and I felt lousy my joints were worse. And I said to myself, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not. I didn't understand. I thought I chose a good product, yet I'm having the symptoms. So maybe my correlations are not correct. And when I went back to the all the inactive ingredients with the names that I wasn't very familiar with at those times, then I realized, ah, it's another ethylene oxide derivative. It's there. So I came across different names, different chemical components that were derived from the same parent component. Yet, as I was doing my experimentation, I wasn't aware of all of those. And the part that made me happy was the fact that I was able to question myself, try to find answers, and look at the other possibilities, not just say I'm right or I'm wrong. But each time I had something that made me feel worse, it was one of the derivatives in one form or another included in it. All right. So there are two points I want to make here. First is, this is the essence of a double-blind experiment. (laughs) 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 You were suspicious of some things and looking at them and making choices, but you were also being subjected to the chemicals under hidden names. And it's not that anyone decided to hide them or there was any type of manipulation involved, they just went under different trade names or product names. And you didn't realize that until you dug further because you had the result before you started to suspect it. And I just think that that was a very exciting part of reading the book is that it was done with that level of rigor, even when it was unintentional. 
The second thing is, is that I'm sure a lot of people listening to this right now are saying to themselves, they're saying, well, wait a second. First of all, why are manufacturers, you know, why does Chapstick put this in their lip balm? Or why does the company that made the skin moisturizer, why do they put these products into their consumer goods? What possible addition or enhancement do they add to the customer experience? Because they wouldn't add something otherwise. There, there has to be some benefit, some intended benefit to it from the manufacturer. I don't know about intended benefits. I'm sure that because these chemical ingredients are cheap and they apparently offer, let's say, a, a nice feel to the cream or a nice texture to the makeup or a nice um, smell to the lip balm that we use. Those are obviously things that play a role in a consumer picking up the uh, the right product or the, the the preferred product, I should say rather. Yet the manufacturers don't have regulations that are strict. They have recommendations. So they could put as much as they like. I mean, they could definitely go over the recommended dosage. And they're not liable for this because it's not regulation. It's a recommendation. And that was one of the things that I learned uh, looking at the norms in the, uh, with the regulatory agencies uh, as far as uh, the cosmetics. How much can you use of this? How much you can't use? And how many things you can mix? Sometimes you find so many chemicals in one product. It's amazing. And the label may say, oh, this is made with chamomile. And this is made with aloe vera. And yes, those ingredients are there as well. But the number of chemicals are overwhelming compared to the two plant-derived ingredients. Right. The, the familiar ones that are at the top lines, people can recognize and feel assured by, but then it looks like you know a constant eye chart <laughs> as you go further yes. down the label. Yes. And I think that a lot of people share the understanding that you and I have that the most common and abundant elements or components of a product are listed first. So as you go down the label, they're present in decreasing order. Tell me when somebody says, well, these are one of the, the few elements present. How do you respond to that? Because it does matter that they're present versus not present, regardless of the amount in some cases. How do you respond to that? Uh, one of the um, concepts I uh bring to the discussion, to the argument, is the fact that if you're sensitive enough, the small amount will still make an impact. And if you think the um, somebody is sensitive to bees and you, know, you get them a little allergic reaction to a bee sting, you don't need a lot of um, that particular um, substance to be injected by the bee. It's like the amount of a, a grain of sand. That's how little you need. And some people develop a serious reactions, a serious reaction. Others don't have such serious reactions. Yet, if you're sensitive to it, you could develop a reaction even if the amount is tiny. And it's true that the mechanism of action, it's not the same. The chemicals I described are not really triggering this kind of reactions. But all of this added amount from products that we use every day, multiple times, may have an impact on the way the body deals with it. And these products are not supposed to be in our body. They are not substances that 
our metabolism knows very well how to deal with, I think is just something that eventually it figures out. And it's one thing to do to have certain components in food because the digestive system works in a certain way. But when you put them on the skin, it has to go through the circulation to get to the liver. It has to. So it's a different pattern to deal with these chemicals. And it's not an easy one, I think. What you're saying is that these chemicals may be tested digestively. Some companies might be using the tests to justify using them in skincare products. Um, no, 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 I'm sorry. I think I, uh, I didn't express myself very clear on this. No, I said, when you put these chemicals on the skin, it follows a certain path towards being um, eliminated. And when you ingest them, it's a different way to, to deal with them metabolically. I think that when they tested, they probably tested for the product that it's supposed to be used in a certain way. But my um, philosophy, my theory is that when you have to deal with products applied on the skin, it's a different way the body needs to absorb them and disposes of them as opposed to what it's supposed to be doing with stuff that you ingest. Good clarification. Thank you. Marcella, what is the chemical in skin lotions that I mean, there are different types of skin lotions, different brands, but what are the chemicals that might be listed as inert chemicals that actually you found can interfere with a body's functioning? Oh, sure. There are a few of them and many of them, most of them, um, which I found to be not uh, healthy are derivatives of this um, ethylene oxide, which uh, come under all kinds of names. Now, ethylene oxide, I just want to specify, it's like the cousin for ethylene glycol, which is the product that we use as antifreeze. But ethylene oxide is a carcinogen that it was considered by the National Institute of um, Toxicology. So the parent component for all these ingredients that I took in the cosmetic product is a derivative of ethylene oxide, which is a carcinogen. And the problem is that these traces of ethylene oxide are also present in the final product. If you, anybody remembers from the chemistry classes, which I also had to, to dig into it to remember, the simple equations are obviously straightforward, but they're always can be a little bit of a contaminant from the parent components that start a chemical reaction. So the other part about polyethylene glycols is that this little tiny bit of carcinogen from this product or that product may stay in the final ingredient. So we have PEGs, right? Polyethylene glycols, polysorbates. We have phenoxyethanol. We have ethanolamines. They're all start, the starting reaction is ethylene oxides and some other component. And the polysorbates can be any form of the sorbates, the 40, 60, 80. There are a lot of times those numbers appear there. Is that right? Yes, correct. Yes. There could be a number of them. Yes. What I remember as I read through the book and started thinking about this is I said to myself, well, I think that the primary use of these chemicals is as a smoothing agent. I started looking that up and that's what I found. And it smooths out the product, either in the skincare lotion or in different food products. And I looked at the chewing gum that I was eating and it had sorbates in it and it went right in the trash. (laughs) It's like, huh, it is so prevalent. And as you just make a short list of things and start looking for the roots and the derivatives, they are very prevalent. And I chose to be on the lookout for these things. It's also common, not just in the foods we eat, not just in the medicines that are prescribed for us, 
but sometimes also there are chemical dangers lurking in our cookware. Is that right? That's right. In the cookware, yes, absolutely. Not only in the cookware, but also in the um, in the products that we buy off the shelf. Let's say canned food. There are different kinds of chemicals. They're not all derivatives of um, the ones we already discussed, but there are different chemicals that are present in the cookware and in some of the uh, uh, wrapping or packing of the uh, of the food products we buy. So you mentioned two in particular that I think are very common. One is Teflon. And I went to our kitchen <laughs> that night and I said, oh, these old Teflon pans, which we really don't use anymore, they're not going to be taking up space in our cupboard and you know, remove those. And then also you mentioned aluminum foil. Can you talk about that? Well, yes. Aluminum is uh, one of the, uh, what is called metalloestrogen. So it's an estrogen, it's a metallic compound that's not supposed to be in our body. In our body, we have something that's called trace elements, which are certain tiny little amounts of uh, metals, which are useful, like a little bit of chromium, a little bit of um, manganese. It's a small list of trace elements they're called. Well, aluminum is not part of them. Aluminum is not part of the um, elements that it's supposed to be in our body. And Aluminum from the way it's being used, it's so prevalent in um, cookware from trays to um, aluminum foil, and it does have estrogenic effects in our body. And one of the ways I noticed that when I use aluminum in one form or another, it's uh, something that bothers me, is um, by getting migraines. And knowing, as a doctor, knowing the effects between estrogens and migraine headaches, I was wondering if uh, all of this estrogen-like substances that are in cookware or in other products, and aluminum is one of them, are some substances that could cause my migraines to get worse. And sure enough, they did. And eliminating them made a, a huge impact on my migraines. And I know there are a lot of people out there suffering of migraines and they're supposed to take a lot of medicines to help. And sometimes the medicine don't work and you're absolutely miserable for a couple of days if the medication doesn't work. Yet, a lot of these products that we use and we think that they're fine to use are um, actually somewhat responsible for um, acting on the estrogen receptors and there is a connection between the estrogens and the migraines. And um, I'm very happy to say that it made a huge impact on my migraines when I eliminated all of this um, estrogen-like substances from uh, so many products, from the common products used. Marcella, are you ready to play for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Of course I am. I'm really looking forward to that. Go ahead. All right. So what's the biggest obstacle to adopting more skepticism about common household products that contain toxins that potentially can harm our health? I think... The fact that they're out there on the shelf and you can buy them anytime you want, it's a big negative impact on making changes. And most of the time people I talk to, they say, well, if they're regulated, that means, I mean, if they're out there, that means they're regulated enough and we could buy them. I don't understand why should I doubt it. On the other hand, there is enough research to show that that's, we should keep some suspicion at least about that. And my point of view is that if there is something that could be detrimental to my health, and if there is an alternative, then I would go for the alternative. 
Another factor that may play a role is the um, the fact that the um, products which are healthier are somewhat more expensive. And I want to clarify something here that probably a lot of people don't really take into account, but um, we all use the lip balm of some sort. And I'm going to give use this example to clarify the fact that these products in the long run are not as expensive as they seem when you first look at the price. So lip balm I used to have in my pocket, in my lab coat pocket, and use it every hour. I just couldn't do without it. I noticed it. I was wondering if some sort of addiction with it or whatever the reason may be, but the more I used it, the more I needed it. And when I came across some information regarding the ingredients used to make lip balm, I realized that some of them, actually what they do, they impair the lips capacity to produce moisture. So that's why the more you use it, the more you need it. And it's true that it's cheap, but when I um, realized that it's not a good product and I replaced it with something that was a couple of dollars instead of, uh, I don't know, 60 cents or whatever the price was at the time, I realized that the new product lasts a lot longer. I don't have to use it every hour. I maybe have to use it a few times a day in the winter and not as much in the summer. So the fact that I spend $3 instead of 50 cents, it pretty much gets me to the same point that I buy much less lip balm, that it's cheap, but it's not as healthy. And I spend the money on buying a better product, which lasts longer than what I used to have. And the same thing happens with the um, healthy shampoos, let's say. We use shampoo. I have a friend who uses it every day. He said, if I don't use it, my hair is so greasy. And it's true that certain components in the regular shampoo dry the scalp. And as a result, more sebum is being formed. And then you have to wash more and it dries more. Now with the products I use, it gets true. It's the, the price is higher. But I wash my hair, believe it or not, as far as 10 days apart. And it's a major improvement. My hair looks good. It feels good. It's healthier. It doesn't get greasy. Yes, it's true. I spend $20 on a bottle instead of seven, but it lasts a lot longer. These products also could be diluted and they would last even longer. And it's well worth it uh, considering the fact that the hair is not falling anymore. It's not getting greasy. It's so much worth it that the price tag definitely plays a role to make some people step back from buying the product. And of course, a lot of these other companies, they have their own sales and their own other um, incentives. So in the long run, you're not going to pay as much money as you think. And health-wise, I think it's worth it. That's a great point. What's the best item you've purchased for your work or personal life for under $100 in the last year? I purchased an amazing shampoo which costs $29 and it lasts well over half a year, if not longer. What's it called? It's called uh, Morocco Method. That's the company that makes it. And they have multiple versions of, with different ingredients, you're supposed to alternate them. Uh, but the product itself, you know, it's pretty big and it lasts a very long time. I actually dilute it because I think I get the same benefits from it, even if it's not the thick, initial <laughs> look when I uh, opened the container, 
I get the benefits for, for my hair. And um, I, I think it's a great product. It's a great line of products, I think. So let's imagine that we're able to offer one or two tips in each of the following rooms or areas that I'm going to mention that an adult listening to the show can go and explore what types of products they have and be on the lookout to question, examine, explore some skepticism about whether they want to have those products in each of these areas. So let's start in the personal bathroom at home. I know that I've been looking to eliminate sodium lauryl sulfate products in the toothpaste and shampoos, and that's something that I looked into. What are one or two products that you would suggest? We'll start with women, and then we'll do men. Okay. I like uh, Dr. Bronner's toothpaste. I use that. The only downside to it is that it doesn't have fluoride, and I found an equivalent, which is uh, Jason toothpaste, which has fluoride, so I alternate. I know the American Dental Association is strong on fluoride, so I try to balance both worlds, uh, the, um, the world of medical field and the world of uh, healthier products. So I don't ignore the medical advice at all. I just try to combine it. So um, I'll, I alternate them. And since we're talking about women's health in particular, what cosmetics would you encourage women to look at alternatives for? You mean brands? Yeah, brands, things that you would swap out and say, try this instead of that. Okay, I could um, give out some of the um, products that our family uses, and I had uh, a bit of resistance to implement those. But um, yes, for, um, for let's say for deodorant, I like um, Primal Pit Paste. And more recently, I discovered that EO, which is also a nice, um, healthy deodorant. For uh, lip balm, I use um, Dr. Bronner's. And for soap, the same thing. I like uh, Dr. Bronner's products quite a lot, and um, they're pretty much everywhere in the house. So let's move now into the kitchen. What are one or two things that we should look at replacing in the kitchen that would help us live healthier because we're avoiding the products that have caused reactions and that you've been able to find research on? Oh, sure. The food storage happens in uh, glass containers. I like Pyrex, but any glass container would probably be fine. Or mason jars for things that have to fit in a jar. I have my own uh, reusable glass water bottle, which I fill with water from my um, refrigerator filter, and um, I use it. I do not use any plastic wrap. I uh, replaced all of that with a uh, paper wrap. And if I have to put something in the freezer in a Ziploc bag, I usually wrap it in paper first and then put it in the freezer uh, in, the, in the plastic bag. I uh, use a stainless steel for cooking or cast iron. I um, use um, regular dinnerware. I don't eat in plastic and uh, I don't uh, warm up anything in plastic or even in the microwave. I usually use uh, uh, an oven to, uh, to warm up foods. I know the, the microwave has been a little bit iffy. The discussion about the microwave use has been out there and I don't have much use of it. I don't even like the way the food warms up in the microwave and I much like the, um, the toaster oven that or the regular oven if it's a it's a bigger container and if you could post a billboard for a month that got wide visibility throughout the day with everyone listening who makes decisions in their family in their offices what message would you put on that billboard that would have the greatest urgency and impact do not ignore 
something that may be detrimental just because at the moment there is no proof. Maybe something along the lines of trust your body, trust your thinking? Trust your thinking. It's important. It just has to be the right thinking. So I've seen a lot of arguments about what I think is right from people who told me, no, that's not proved. So I don't know if trust your thinking, but I would say trust the products that your grandparents used. Oh, I like that. I like that. Trust the products your grandparents used. Can you say more about that? Oh, of course. As I look back and I see how they were living and what they were using to cook and to the foods that they were using, they're all pretty much whole foods that they uh, prepared um, the meals in the house in um, cookware that was safe. And they also ate very small portions, which is another thing that most of us probably should consider. We don't get to burn as much calories as uh, we would want to because of the uh, the way life works, the way um, the job situation is, you have to commute, you have to go places, you're so busy. It's not that much time on our hands. Hey, great. Two more questions for you. One is your research took a lot of different turns and you were facing difficult health decisions at the same time as you were doing these experiments and hypothesizing that certain common substances and their derivatives were found everywhere in your house. How did you find the inner strength to persevere when even your husband and children teased you? I usually like the contradictions that we had because these turned out to be more useful than if he said, oh, sure, honey, whatever you want to do, it's fine with me. All this arguing about why do we do this and why do we change that actually made me look deeper into my arguments, made me look deeper into the research and find out if I was right or wrong. And at times I didn't see the immediate benefits and I somewhat doubted that my hypothesis was correct. But after a certain time, and sometimes it took a week, other times it took a couple of months, the truth came up to the surface. It's something that wasn't right that I just wasn't aware of. And I brought that explanation to the table. And if it makes sense, they obviously agreed to it. Didn't you hear comments sometimes like, oh, mom, why are we so against ranch dressing this week? I never used ranch dressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I know what you're saying. No, not really. I I didn't get questioned that way. I was able to to provide whatever uh, food I thought it was better. Yes, why don't we use this anymore? And why do we replace it with this other product? I said, this is healthier. So that was it. And as far as we're not cooking in this, we're not using this, we're not wrapping in this, that was easier to implement because nothing else was available. Only what I thought he was right. And they didn't really have much of an objection there. The objection came with some cosmetic products that they thought they liked. And um, I said, if you want to use it, you could use it outside the house. This is not going to be in the house. And the reason for that, it wasn't because I was uh, being or trying to be a pain in the neck and uh, be bossy. It was because some of these ingredients that I mentioned are volatile. So that means that if a container is open, some trace of 
the chemical could be inhaled. And that was the, my reason for avoiding uh, derivatives of um, called ethanolamines, diethanolamine, triethanolamines. This is all stuff that could be, that is volatile. It actually, uh, diethanolamine is uh, prohibited, is banned in Europe. Uh, no products are allowed to use it because it's also contaminated with something that's a carcinogen. But my uh, immediate trouble with it is the fact that it's volatile and um, it could be inhaled. Marcella, you shared so many great ideas with us today and helped us really understand an important journey that you've been taking to understand why certain generally accepted as safe items and components and chemicals really aren't and to share with us the journey that you've taken to restore your health due to some of the deleterious effects that that's had on you and your health. I want to thank you for sharing the inspiration you received about being kinder, because I think that that comes through in the way that you approached all of these challenges, not only with maybe patients, but your family, your children, and yourself as you started to make these changes that weren't obvious and that required a lot of internal fortitude and courage. You talked about how moisturizer was the first thing that caught your attention because earlier you had dismissed it because it was related to your mother who was getting the same sort of inflammation symptoms. And then when your mother-in-law got it and experienced the same thing, that's what caught your attention and really started you on the journey thinking that there were things you could do to help make yourself healthier. Thanks for sharing the details about the substances you found. In your book, you go into so many more details and it's very, very comprehensive and it's a great resource. So I really appreciate that. It helped educate me on the chemicals and refresh my own chemistry in order to learn more about this and also make some changes in my life because it's not that I would feel bad. I don't have those particular symptoms, but I want to play the odds. And if these chemicals that are claimed to be inert actually are having an effect or laying potential problems down the road, I just wanna take some sensible precautions and make better choices. And I think that the fact that you grew stronger in your convictions and learned how to use your family's skepticism to make your research even more rigorous and thorough, I think comes through. And it was really great to hear how you use that in, in order to make your case stronger. As you said at the end, the truth came to the surface. So I want to thank you again so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Well, thank you so much, Bill. It was a pleasure for me to be on the show. And I hope I convinced some of your audience uh, about uh, my journey and my benefits. And again, I'm not saying that I'm back to normal, but certain improvements are clear. And I definitely wanted to share them because there's so many people out there that don't know. They're not aware of this and they're just suffering needlessly. And I just wanted to bring a little light into that. Marcella, where can we find out more about you and your work online, as well as some of the resources you've put together? The uh, website I have, it's called drpopaslist.com. And it has quite enough information about the book, about some other um, ideas that I researched after I published the book and they're in my blog. And um, I have throughout the book a lot of the um, resources and the uh, biography that I uh, research, all the articles, not all, but almost all the articles, the medical articles that I uh, came across uh, doing my research and trying to 
find out if I'm right or wrong. Dr. Marcella Magdapopa, author of Keep Away From Grass, thank you for sharing your message of trust the products your grandparents used and joining me again on my quest for the best. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.